And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Spinning around the sun is something like 18 and a half miles per second. If you sit real still, I used to say that in the planetarium. The kids actually, um, they kept reporting negative results, and then we would tell them why that would not work. Welcome to uh, Sunny Night. I'm so sorry about uh, last night, but uh, when those things hit, there's only one graceful thing you can do. It's kind of like after you tried everything you bow to the inevitable. We're going to recycle last night's show, which is all about uh, what's going on around Bill Shatner and a whole bunch of other interesting stuff for next Saturday. So make a note on Halloween Eve, Saturday the 30th, um, we will be doing... The implications of Star Trek, I actually found a very interesting quote from my old friend Kraft Ericke from the New York Times, which kind of puts what Bill is doing um, on various network shows into perspective. And that will lead us in some other directions. Uh, I'm going to talk again about Bill Nelson next week. I'm going to talk about him tonight in a moment or two. So you might want to uh, kind of put on your calendar next weekend because Saturday and Sunday are going to take us in some very interesting, and may I say, hyper-dimensional directions. Tonight, um, I want to lead off, obviously, with news. Item number one, for those of you who are new to the show, the way you find us is you look for the other side of midnight.com. That's our website. Click on that, then click on tonight's banner, The Consciousness of Crows, for Sunday, October 24th. That will take you to the guest page. And uh, right under there, you will see fast links to my items and Dr. Grossinger's and uh, click on my name and that will take you to my section of radio with pictures. And item number one, of course, again, as it has been for the last month or so, we're looking at La Palma. And I don't want to bore you with all the reasons you should be looking carefully at La Palma, but you should because things are kind of getting interesting. There's increased seismic activity. Um, There's increased uh, uh, swelling of the volcano. And you know what uh, could happen in the worst, worst, worst case scenario, which even though it's a low probability, put this thing on your phone, have it ring, uh, have it alert you if there's a major seismic event, because that could be, as Carl used to say, bad for beagles and begonias all around the North Atlantic Basin. Moving on. Um, As you know, if you've been anywhere but on a small atoll in the southwestern Pacific over the last several days, uh, a few days ago we had a terrible tragedy here in the Land of Enchantment uh, over by Santa Fe. Uh, Alec Baldwin's latest movie, a western being shot on a ranch just over the hill from me, uh, a movie called Rust, had an extraordinary, horrible tragedy where... Baldwin was handed by an assistant director a gun, which he presumed was not hot, as the term goes. Uh, The associate director, assistant director, told him it was a coal gun, meaning it was not loaded either with ammo or with blanks. And somehow, we don't know how yet because the investigation is ongoing, um, he wound up shooting his cinematographer and his director who was standing behind the cinematographer, and she died. 
And of course, it's an incredibly almost impossible to imagine tragedy. There's all kinds of investigations. Next week, next Saturday, we will have uh, Robert Mitchell, who was a friend of ours and a director of feature films and commercials and uh, well-known in Hollywood. He's worked with uh, uh, major directors, including on the uh, uh, recent film uh, filming of Midway. And so I'm going to be asking him at the start of the show next week about safety on set and why there are guns that can be loaded with live ammo allowed on set anymore. And we'll get into that in great detail because obviously we're now looking at shooting movies, not just on earth, but in orbit, we'll have an update on the Russians and the filming of their feature film called the challenge with uh, a very interesting actress and a producer director. And apparently when they were up there for 12 days, they inveigled the entire crew of the space station to be involved in the shoot. And of course, in a space environment where you have, uh, you're in a pressure vessel, kind of like being in an aircraft at 40,000 feet, the last thing you would want would be a projectile weapon. And so we will discuss uh, safety protocols in space as well as on the ground. And that will lead us into some other interesting things about uh, the recent wave of commentary regarding shooting movies about space in space. And I'll bet even Tom Cruise's name will come up. Item number three. Now, this one is where things get really interesting, particularly in terms of what we're going to be talking uh, to with our guest tonight. Bill Nelson who, as you know, is the current head of NASA. And when the president made him the current head of NASA about uh, six months ago, I said this could be really interesting because Bill Nelson, former senator, Democratic senator from the state of Florida, is one of a handful of civilians who actually, even before Shatner, made it into space. Now, Nelson was in the uh, shuttle and it I believe it was the Columbia, I think, Uh, could have been Challenger. Uh, It's so far back in time, many, many years ago that I forget. And I did not have time to look it up. But anyway, he flew, and it probably was Challenger, because he flew on the flight just before the Challenger disaster. So if they had slipped his flight by one mission, then Bill Nelson would not be in the news to be talked about tonight. Why is he in the news? Well, if you click on item number three, which is a Twitter connection, a couple of days ago, Bill Nelson made some very interesting comments at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. And he talked about having discussed the UAP phenomenon, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, which, of course, is a code name in the Navy now for UFOs. You know, talk about rebranding. Uh, Do they really think they're fooling anybody? Yes, they do. Some of them are that dumb. Um, Anyway, to give it a gloss of more credibility, they've tried to change ufology to upology. (laughs) That doesn't scan. Anyway, the comments he makes is that he's talked to pilots, the pilots who have actually seen and photographed from, from the FLIR and the gun camera footage these extraordinary vehicles making incredible maneuvers uh, like falling or diving from 80,000 feet 
just above the surface of the ocean in seconds. Imagine the G-forces. Imagine the propulsion capabilities. And again, these are objects that have no aerial aerodynamic surfaces. They don't have wings. They don't have tails. They don't have rudders. They have nothing that would be identifiable as a conventional aircraft. Their performances, of course, are totally beyond the realm of what we think of as current physics. So Nelson, remember, appointed by Biden as the current head of NASA, a senator who flew in space. And that's really important because, as we've heard over the last few days from Bill Shatner, uh, being in space, you uh, sometimes manifest this what's called overview effect where your perspective on a whole bunch of things that are down to earth changes. Well, Bill Nelson was talking very candidly about the UAP slash UFO phenomenon and the fact that he's talked to these pilots. He's personally debriefed them. He talked about visual sightings, the camera footage, the radar contact. So you have multiple sensor confirmation. There's something out there beyond the cockpit. Remember, these guys are in F-18s and they can only loiter for like an hour and then they have to go back to the carriers to refuel. Well, these objects, whatever they are, they just kind of hung around until the F-18s came back, like they were um, parading or demonstrating or having a power demonstration before the fleet, actually more than one fleet. There were two aircraft battle groups on both coasts from 2004 to 2014 to now, and Nelson said that there have been over 300 recorded incidents, which is a number which is kind of impressive. But the most interesting thing he said when he started talking about who they are, he said, we hope, and I'm paraphrasing because you can look at the actual video yourself. He said, I hope they're not a terrestrial antagonist, but if they're not, that means they're from someplace else. In other words, they're potentially extraterrestrial. And again, you know me. I look at politics and conversations at multi-levels and through a kind of an Emily Dickinson lens, you know, the tell all the truth, but tell it slant school of uh, talking about reality. And for Bill Nelson, the current head of NASA, to come within a whisker of saying bluntly, aliens are real because he's got real hard physical evidence from multiple sources who he has talked to directly. And they've obviously shown him evidence directly as the current head of NASA trivial. It's one more step down the road to inevitable disclosure. The question is disclosure of what? Anyway, um, there's a couple more items that I'll get to as we, proceed through the show. So what I'd like to do now is introduce my guest of the morning, Dr. Richard Grossinger, who, as you know, full disclosure, was my publisher of the Monuments of Mars in all its iterations going back many, many, many years. And we're now in discussion for bringing forth our new book, our latest book on what's on Mars and uh, other places in the solar system. Richard has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Michigan He is currently um, heading an imprint out of uh, 
um, uh, Inner Traditions, which is a major publisher. <clears throat> when he comes on, he'll tell me the name of the imprint because I've promptly forgotten. Uh, it's sacred something or other, but uh, he will he will uh, get to that momentarily. Grossinger's writing can be divided into three overlapping categories. General experimental prose, books on topics in science viewed historically, cross-culturally, epistemologically, esoterically, and in terms of pop culture, and autobiographical memoirs. All of the works arise through a literary sensibility. And I could go on, but you can read all the rest of it there on the Other Side of Midnight website. So without further ado, Richard, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Thanks, Richard. Well, let's see. Where should we dive in? Um, before airtime, we were having this very interesting off-air off discussion, and I, I, I guess I'd like to pick it up there because you and I were having this very interesting argument, and I was arguing in favor of empirical evidence, and you basically said something, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that nothing really can be proven. Why don't we start there? Okay, I, I wasn't so much saying that nothing can be proven or speaking against empirical evidence. I was just, as is my own nature in such discussions, reckoning with the fact that you and I have been talking since I think it's roughly 1986 about anomalous phenomena, beginning with the face on Mars, but covering pretty much the full range of things people talk about And although we have many points of agreement, we do have fundamental points of disagreement that aren't that easily categorized (laughs) or identified. And this came up because being on the other side of midnight, literally, I'm in Maine, is not my favorite thing. I, I like to go to bed well before midnight. And I was basically making the argument that it really, I really, it really wasn't necessarily an ideal thing for you and me to talk because we tended to talk around each other and maybe it was better if I just went to sleep at a normal time. And (laughs) you basically talked me into coming on the show from the standpoint that we really share interest in these topics. I I struggle actually to to really put a pointer on what is the difference and what is the issue. Um, It's not that I don't think that there's empirical evidence. I think that you and I disagree about what constitutes empirical evidence. And as you were saying before in relation to um, UFOs or UAPs, evidence of what? Like I I would go back, I guess, to our starting point, the face-on-face and monuments on Mars and all the subsequent Martian... um, what would I call it, Martian um, um, geography and phenomenology and the rest. And I, I like it all and find all of it interesting. And then the whole other range of anomalous phenomena I find interesting. But I, I don't think that most of it um, comes down to, to a scientific definition or that that's the goal. I think that I think that science as we know it is intrinsically limited to a kind of um, formulaic mindset about what reality is to begin with. And 
my own belief is just that many of these phenomena um, occur in ways that 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 can't really be touched by science as we presently practice it and and understand it. And when I write, I try and find language um, and um, kind of images and and um, analyses that get at other ways of looking at it. Um, you read, God, that, that was supposed to be a pretty old description I posted somewhere of my work, but I do use a literary sensibility in the sense that, um, as you said of Emily Dickinson, I mean, I would think of Melville and John Donne and Shakespeare and all of those people um, as delving into the into mysterious phenomena and um, and I share the idea that we approach it by a kind of magical um, um, penetrating of it through our own imagination and through our own psyches and I'm interested in science too and I'm interested obviously I'm interested in in Mars in animal intelligence in aliens in um, um, spirit survival and all those things, I'm interested in how they might have scientific um, explanations. But where I think you and I tend to end up in different places is I don't think we're anywhere near solving any of those riddles in scientific terms. And uh, I was teasing you. I think showman that you are, you build up big crescendos and produce something which you call evidence and which I call really nice metaphors. You, you are a wonderful metaphor maker. And, um, and that's just the difference. I, I, I it's like, um, I like, I like the way words will pop up. The word rabbit hole is the new, one of the new popular words. I think that um, you, you that they're all rabbit holes. You know, you go down them like Alice, and then, well, what do you have? Um, you have a lot of really interesting, um, um, ex existentially real phenomena. But what they are, when you come back and try and put them in terms of Newton or Heisenberg or Einstein or Stephen Hawking or Richard Hoagland, I don't, I, I don't know that you can do that um, or that I care that much about doing it. So um, I'll stop here and let you take the thread where you want to take it. Well, to me, it's really important because the, the implication, the social implication of what we found on the moon and on Mars will change everything. And, you know, it's kind of like Sagan said to me a long time ago and a bunch of other reporters when we were sitting in on a briefing about the Apollo astronauts and the quarantine procedures and keeping any microorganisms that the Apollo astronauts might scoop up or would cling in the dust to their suits from coming back to Earth and destroying the biosphere. Some reporter, wasn't me, asked him, well, Dr. Sagan, how much should we spend of NASA's budget to protect, you know, the biosphere of the Earth. And Sagan had this very interesting uh, uh, comeback. He said, well, what you want to do is create an equation where on the one hand, and he literally demonstrated, he says, you have the worth of the Earth. 
everything we care about, all our history, all our dreams, our heritage, everything we've ever known, and that's on this side. And he waved his hand. And then he said, on the other hand, and then he brought out the right hand, he said, there's the probability, which is that there will be something on the moon that the Apollo crews could bring back that could destroy everything we hold dear on Earth. And he said, we can't really put numbers on this yet. But he said, if you think of it in terms of the Earth, everything is a huge number, the worth of the Earth. And the probability that there's going to be organisms that could be brought back and infect the Earth has got to be, given everything we know, a very tiny number. So he said, you multiply the big number by the tiny number, and that gives you a ballpark number for how much you should spend. And to me, if you adapt Sagan's reasoning, what is the worth of finding out the human race is not alone, that we're surrounded by extraordinary scientific and epistemological and philosophical treasures beyond calculation? Everything we ever have asked has probably been answered and is in some library, given that we think that those cultures may have had to pass information along in some storageable medium like a library. If we could find one of those libraries, it would give us access to unimaginable potentials that may extend back maybe billions of years in a galaxy which is 13.7 billion years old, according to the current methods of, of kind of, you know, deriving at that number. Now, what is the probability going to happen? Well, back when you and I first had the conversation, I would have said it was a very, very small number. That number has grown extraordinarily, exponentially in the last 20, 30, 40 years to where now on every image that the current Perseverance rover is sending back, not just Hoagland and the Enterprise mission are seeing amazing things, but people all over the world we've never talked to. There are websites, thousands of websites devoted to artifacts that NASA has been suppressing. It's become an incredibly interesting and vibrant cottage industry with thousands, if not maybe tens of thousands of participants sharing and posting and making YouTube videos and pointing out, you know, how to download the originals from NASA, et cetera, et cetera, to where I would now say the number on the right-hand side, the probability is well over 50%. And the worth, of course, has only gone up because the more we see, the more we realize we're not looking at just one extraordinary ancient civilization, but more than one. And maybe there was diffusion of information from cultures in the galaxy. Maybe they weren't just homegrown efforts, but maybe there was communication between this system and many, many others over an extraordinary period of time. So the worth of what we're proposing is huge. The, the potential, the probability that we're right and not wrong is not insignificant anymore I think should determine how much we as a culture, as a civilization, as a space agency, a la Bill Nelson's NASA, should put in to determining 
the worth of this potential stunning treasure. And to me, that says we should be pursuing with all alacrity to find out as much as possible to nail it down, to go from a potential to a certainty. And so my question to you is, what would you need to find out or know to convert your interest into a certainty that this is a reality? Well, (laughs) I just, um, what would I say? Um, You know, way back when I got involved with you in publishing the Monuments of Mars in the first and then later versions, um, what, what struck me most was that you had created a new genre. Um, it wasn't completely new, but it, you had done it so profoundly and in so much detail that it really was new. You had written something that was um, better than science fiction from an imagination standpoint, um, at least in the in in the science part of science fiction, because you had taken real um, real information uh, out of um, out of off of a real object, and it started with Mars, and then it, it went to other celestial bodies, and you made a credible story out of it, a credible narrative, and I don't think that that's changed. Um, I don't see that there is the sort of evidence that would um, lead people to um, agree um, that this, this, this has been solved, that there is evidence. I'm not convinced that there's anything on Mars. Um, I'm interested in it, and, and I, I, I will believe anything at the moment I first see it before I have a chance to reconsider. But, you know, there's not even total agreement that COVID exists. Um, So it's very hard. Uh, There's much more likelihood that COVID exists than that the Martians exist. Um, And um, I, I think in order to really have that discussion, you'd have to have somebody on from NASA who is honest and who doesn't agree that the photos show that and then balance that against um, this cottage industry of people who are finding evidence of life on Mars and then have that discussion and see where it leads and listen to the evidence on both sides. But we can't just sit on one side of it knowing that there's a huge other side and say that we're over the finish line on it because we're not, we're, oh, I think we're much closer to over the finish line. In fact, we are over the finish line um, on UFOs, to go back to the old uh, terminology. They do exist. They are real. It has been acknowledged and admitted. We don't know what they are. I mean, collectively, we don't know what they are. Individually, we may have um, some, some formed ideas about what they are. Um, but as a civilization, we don't know what they are. Um, but we do know that they exist. The, the, that finish line has been crossed. So, again, I'm going to stop and leave the thread for you. 
Well, I think it's a very important place to stop because we are literally at the bottom of the hour. So without further ado, let me uh, let me do this. Um, my guest this morning is Dr. Richard Grossinger. As you can tell, we are having a very interesting um, difference of opinion. And I think uh, rather than beat this poor horse to death, I am in the land of enchantment, of course. When we come back, I'm going to pick up on the segue between his current book, Bottoming Out the Universe, and the very interesting topics which I want to talk about in terms of the new book, which comes out in the first quarter of next year, which um, there are segues. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Suddenly, they discovered this thing called deuterium. They've actually shown studies that depleting the water by 30% actually makes mice thrive and grow faster, and increasing the deuterium in water by 30% kills them. So in every liter of water, there's approximately six drops of deuterium. Well, if we were to put six drops of cyanide in our water, we probably wouldn't make it. A poison is a poison. Now, this is an isotope, so this is a radioactive, but it is stable. But I believe deuterium serves many, many, many purposes. The history, really, what we should know is the global must have an agenda. And their agenda is to keep us as dumbed down as possible and so we don't recognize what they do and we comply. Part of the way of doing that is keeping it sick. Most water is about 155, but anything about 120 actually can affect us from literally a psychosis level and it's affecting our pineal gland and our pituitary gland and of course our right brain. So what happens is Excess deuterium makes it sick. Even on the National Institute Health website, they talk about deuterium helping propagate leukemia. And that's them admitting, because they always have to disclose their BS. That's them admitting it, so you can imagine the other things that it does to our body. We don't resonate, we don't sleep very well. I think it is the single biggest tool that the globalists, 
the cabal. It's the biggest tool they have that puts us in a state that we don't recognize anything and we don't resonate and vibrate at the highest level possible. Hello, Lewis Herms here. Wow, what a fantastic time on the other side of the news with the eclectic cast. What incredible information, and I was so happy to be here. everyone to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, October 24th, 2021. My uh, guest this morning is Richard Grossinger. Full disclosure, Richard is an old friend, a colleague, someone I love to disagree with because he has, in his disagreements, he has depth. I mean, a lot of people I disagree with and they're very superficial. Richard is not superficial. Uh, We may disagree. In fact, I think we disagree on a number of points, but at least we disagree collegially. And I will hold out the opportunity that at some point, one of us can admit we're wrong. Um, let's go to Bottoming Out the Universe and then the new book, which is what, Dream Times and Thought Forms. And I believe you said in your introduction to the new book that these form a kind of a pattern that you've been writing a series of inquiries into the very eclectic subject matter of all these books. Do you want to give us a kind of a meta pattern for what you're aiming to do? <laughs> yeah, by the way, I'm glad you dropped the doctor. I'm, I'm old fashioned in that way. I think you should only call people doctor if they're medical doctor. Oh, that brings and, uh, up the whole conversation about Jill Biden, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, okay, well, I don't know how I – okay, I'll accept that. You are an anthropologist. You do have a doctorate, so you yes. are in a club where you are allowed to I'm say, allowed to, but uh, I, I'm also allowed to reject it <laughs> if I'm in the club. Well, so. come on. I've known you so long that I even can call you other than Richard. But anyway, <laughs> let's, let's get okay. back to – All get, right, well, I, we don't have to go down, go down that road. So what – I, it's kind of, I think kind of you look back at your own wake to understand what you what you were doing. When I started off, um, and I was still a teenager when I started off, I began writing as as a way to um, to kind of I was imitating the great books that I read. Began reading in high school, but I was influenced too. I was in, um, for all of childhood, I was in, uh, in, in psychoanalysis from age eight and doing like symbols and dream interpretation. And then starting around the middle of high school, people began getting involved in, in Tarot and Jung and the poetry of Charles Olson. And all of that created not just the mystery realm, but tools and techniques to get at the mystery realm. And at a certain point, I just started 
writing in earnest. And for a great many years, probably into my early 30s, I simply wrote what I called experimental prose, and it had a life of its own there. I did many, many books, I think as many as 20 books in that period of time, um, that didn't have any particular topic. They were just about everything. And they went by the principle, um, almost that you were channeling it, but you weren't channeling it from an entity, an, an exogenous entity. You were channeling it from the kind of the, the mystery realm that you shared with all the writers in, in the lineage, uh, in your own lineage and in all the other languages. And then starting in 1977, when I moved from Vermont to California and stopped teaching college and was trying to think of other ways to earn a living, I began what became over the next 20 plus years writing books on, in retrospect, I see four separate topics. Um, the first one was alternative and non-Western medicine, shamanism, healing. The second one is the one where you and I intersected uh, initially, um, astronomy, cos cosmology, um, and, I th and that includes sort of physics and all I called that book the night sky and by that I meant every imaginable night sky since the night sky is um, is sort of is sort of the boundary of a system what form what forms our sky doesn't necessarily form the sky of other creatures or entities in other dimensions and then the third topic was embryology biology um, and that was somewhat shaped by my own inquiries uh, into cranial sacral therapy and other healing systems that taught me how to how to use energy itself to how to move from kind of um, uh, like like studying forms of massage and then realizing like, studying shiatsu, doing tai chi and so forth, and then realizing there was an energetic component. And at the same time, asking the question, where does that energetic component enter into the way in which we get bodies to begin with? How are these bodies formed? And I found an astonishing lack of literature on embryology and still think that's true. And I did two significant books um, in, in the 80s up until really the early 2000s, the first one called Embryogenesis and the second one called Embryos, Galaxies, and Sentient Beings. And then I switched to consciousness itself. It just suddenly struck me that I should be uh, addressing the mystery of the fact that we had conscious, that, that we not only had consciousness, but we had personal identities. And I opened that by doing a three volume work that I ended up calling Dark Pool of Light the first volume simply on sort of the neuroscience, physics, biology, and, the, and, and even philosophy of consciousness. And the second volume on the psychic and psycho-spiritual aspects of consciousness. I was still living in California then and studying at the Berkeley Psychic Institute where I realized that energies existed off the body too. And so I integrated that into my 
inquiry, and when I, and then I was worked what, for a while what, what, on. Was that go. the institute run by Arthur Young? No, no, the, um, that no. Arthur Young was in. He he had interest in the topics, but uh, he wasn't. He was more involved in astrology than he was in actual direct psychic work. Um, I. I, I only studied there for like a year and a half because it was it was awfully I mean I learned a lot but it was cult like um, it it was um, it was it had it had sort of Scientology like he called it I think the Institute for the Study of Consciousness I think right yeah yeah well that's different you know, that that that's true I we both went to I think meetings at Arthur Young's house. What's funny about that is I just this week I met another author, Young, um, for the first time. His name is David Delorme, and he lives only about 20 minutes from one of my houses in Maine. I'm in I'm at my Portland house now. I'm mostly living in Bar Harbor, but in Portland there's this guy who's very similar to author Young. in that he's an inventor, a technologist, a, a contributor to the whole development of the digital world. Yeah, we should mention but, who Arthur Young was. He was an engineer, an incredible engineer. He literally was the inventor of the Bell helicopter at the you know, Bell Aerospace Systems, as it eventually became known, which, uh, you know, he had a hard science background. And for him to get into consciousness, I always thought was intriguing. Did you know, Richard? Right that I gave the first public presentation on the monuments of Mars at the Institute under the tutelage of I can of believe that. I mean, it was, it was like walking distance from where you live. Yep. So why yep. not? Um, and, uh, and what was, what, how I understood it was that author made so much money from his, uh, so much ongoing money from his helicopter patent that he never had to work again. So he, um, he decided decided to devote himself to the study of consciousness, and he was particularly intrigued by astrology, um, and uh, spent huge amounts of time trying to find astrological correlations and then to explain them. Um, mm. uh, so anyway, to just finish my own thread, um, I um, I. Bottoming out the universe was a continuation of my examination of consciousness, but it also was the first book in which I tried to bring together all the threads I've been working with, um, because for the first time I could see them all. And by the way, the uh, I'm reminded because that was the first book uh, of mine done by Inner Traditions, that the imprint I'm curating there is called Sacred Planet Books. And I haven't counted recently, but I've brought in about, I don't know, at least 60, I think maybe even closer to 80 books in a year and a half working there. And I don't mean that as some sort of acclaim to my curation, as that whatever magic is in the noosphere is just sort of driving all these amazing people who are connecting to me out of the blue through networks that I didn't even know existed and uh, and I'm just find myself there and pulling the threads together writing them up and sending sending them in and 
and um, building this list. But anyway, after I did, well, actually, you'll laugh at this. After I did Bottoming Out the Universe and I was working for, for Inner Traditions, I actually got involved in this book. It was a series of stages that led me back to essentially the themes of Bottoming Out the Universe. I was actually started out trying to help them with a book um, that wasn't on my list about Donald Trump and chaos magic and how he used chaos magic in winning the presidency and in developing sigils and egregores like, like MAGA and so forth. And I thought that was a fascinating topic and it drove me who had uh, studied both magic and shamanism over my whole lifetime and all different forms from uh, tarot cards to, you know, doing grounding cords at Berkeley Psychic Institute, it led me to really read what was chaos magic. And once I got into it, I I saw the link between chaos magic and QAnon, which I thought of as a cargo cult or ghost dance in a sense that intersected with chaos magic in an interesting way. And by then we were in COVID time. So I added COVID to the, to the list. And then I expanded it in a couple of other directions with going into the whole cancel culture, identity politics mess. And I did a book um, on all of that and presented it to my own publisher and they said, couldn't you frame it in a psycho-spiritual context? Um, because it was essentially, it was much more a political anthropological book. So I went back and I built a kind of um, bubble around it that was used other things, like, for instance, the, the intelligence of both crows and octopuses, which I'd recently discovered, or new information on UFOs, um, or rethinking um, the whole issue of spirits and spirit communication and um, communication with those who've crossed from here. And so I built that framework around it and everybody liked the framework. And then they said, well, we don't need all this politics because that's not (laughs) what we publish. So actually I'm, I'm finishing up tomorrow, making a separate book out of that, which is twice as long and that one has the awkward working title of um, of weaponized information, technocracy, and the return of the Tower of Babel. And I have a subtitle of um, Trumpism, QAnon, COVID-19, um, and the left hand of so – I think I have chaos magic in there, too, and the left hand of God. And um, – and that book, I've said, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with that public, publication-wise, but the book that we're talking about, ultimately, I rooted back in, in bottoming out the universe and decided to just, I mean, I just saw where I was, and I had a much deeper framework of that. Maybe it happens as we get older that we just keep looking and looking and we see more. I mean, for instance, just on the tiny point that you've put uh, uh, sort of nailed the show to I like, why didn't I know that crows were so interesting? I mean, I sort of knew it, but I mean, I throw food out in the backyard in Bar Harbor, make a compost even just sit there and watch the crows and listen to them. 
and just think about they're talking and they're they're holding conversations that have that have much more meaning than I ever gave to um, to animal talk. And I, and then I mean, the, well, I think so many of us saw my octopus teacher, and that that opened up that whole realm. And I was thinking, why? Well, I always knew octopuses were like complicated, but I didn't realize that they were that complicated. That they um, and that there's so many different kinds of them, and that you actually have an invertebrate an invertebrate brain that's grown out into these eight eight um, separate um, centered beings that can also change themselves. They have layers of color cells, so they can turn themselves into paintings. They also have these cells that can change the texture of their bodies, and they can imitate pretty much anything. And it's like, wow. When you say like, imitate, you mean a, a kind of a chameleon-like Blend into yeah, the background. Like in biomimicry bio and whatever they need to in order to hide. And, um, and it's, it, it's like um, that, that alone just opened me to thinking much more about how intelligent the other intelligences around us are and with almost unstated, what a deep rut we're in in our own civilization which is we've tossed into this algorithm. I mean, I, I think of the algorithm as being what, whereas it's very effective in creating this technocracy, it's, it's, it's merely thrown us into this limiting mode of thought that's driving pretty much everything, everything that's, um, that's sort of, concrete scientific economic political about about the current civilization now i'm sort of off this is how i write i'm off in many directions <laughs> at once to me the interest i mean i have friends who say how could you even say the word QAnon, let alone write about it um i have a, a kind of old friend who's a notable science uh, novelist and science fiction writer jonathan latham who says I can't even say the word, but in fact, when you have such a tension between an invisible world and a world which you're, whatever that was between segments that you were running, a world, uh, I don't want to get off into the uh, one world government uh, um, insanity there, but I mean, we could, but let's not. But when you have, um, such a breakdown of meanings and a conflict of paradigms, how could you not have the arising of essentially a sort of ghost dance cargo cult form, which is attempting to get at the truth, even by creating misinformation intentionally, um, as if to say that the information you're generating is even if it's scientific, so-called scientific, it's wrong by dint of the fact that it's politicized before it even comes out the gate. Um, so we're going to fight back by using disinformation to fight information. And that, to me, okay. is interesting because it points to the greater depth in the psyche of the civilization 
Um, and, and we don't even these days get much into the psyche of the civilization because everybody's on the surface, polarized and arguing about things on the surface. And Can I ask you for go a ahead. second? Okay, your turn. Sorry. Do you, do you know who I am? Um, no, you're another voice. Okay. I'm, I'm Keith Morgan. I worked for ABC News for 30 years as an electronics technician. I worked with Ted Koppel in Nightline. Um, I guess you don't know about the Morgan curve, which is my accidental discovery after NASA manipulated the camera crew that was supposed to be out at Goddard with me, along with the rest of the media in 1988. And that's when I made the discovery by accident. And if you go to YouTube or you go to Google and you put the Morgan curve in quotes, um, watch the video, the, the Morgan curve and watch the, it's only about five minutes and then watch the explanation, which is more than 15 minutes. If you look at that math, which is simple high school geometry, okay, and you see all the coincidences, the exponential spacings, all of the stuff that can't be accidental in the same area where that alleged face is at, and then you look at all the other stuff involved, if you still have doubt that the stuff sitting on Mars is not artificial, then something's wrong, okay? Because what did the lady in hidden figures say, the mathematical genius, she said, math is dependable. Math is true. It tells us the truth. And all the stuff that Richard and Dr. Mark Carlotto and Earl Torn pulled out of Sidonia was on a more complicated level than the simplicity of what I discovered and then Earl expanded on it. And he couldn't expand on it unless what I was looking at was real because there's no way in heck he could manipulate those structures on that planet to fit the scenario that we discovered. And I know, I don't believe, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that those artifacts sitting on the surface of Mars in the Sidonia region are 100% artificial. Somebody built them. The face is not a, a bunch of rocks because NASA took a better picture of it after they got shown up by the European Space Agency by taking a better picture. But both of these rocket science engineers uh, organizations, they put these pictures out upside down and said, oh, look, see, there's nothing there. But if you rotate it around where it's oriented correctly, the other half of the face is not a head on. It is a profile of the face. And that is in the Morgan curve animation, the, the one that's not the explanation. You look at it, You'll see, I outline it, there's no way for all of these details to be in that image if it's just a trick of light and shadow. The trick here is that NASA's been lying to us the whole time, and they've been telling us, oh, no, there's nothing there. And they know, because if I found the curve and Earl found the X and Y axis to the curve, I know they're not that stupid that they couldn't have found it themselves. They know what they're looking at. But there's a game on that's been here ever since 1947 with Roswell going, oh, no, we're, we're alone. Nothing's going on. We're not alone in this universe. We've never have been alone. There have been people here with technologies well advanced than where we are right now. And it's hidden in all of the stuff in plain sight, in all the architecture that's thousands of years old that they wouldn't want to admit to. And it's sitting right in front of us. It's always been in front of us. But they've been telling us, oh, no, 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 
because they have an alternative agenda. They know that there's intelligent entities out there that have been visiting this planet for thousands of years, and we're just now growing up, getting out of the dark ages, but they're going to keep pushing this at us that this is not true because they want to keep control. They, that's the way they control the masses, or they figure this is the way to control the masses. But now the Navy has dropped the bomb and said, oh, we don't know what these things are. So now they're playing dumb. They know what they are. They've had anti-gravity probably from the 50s. But they've got the ability to travel amongst the stars, according to Ben Rich, and take E.T. home. But these things are locked up in black projects that are so locked up in these projects that it take an act of God to get them released, according to Ben Rich. So we are at a point now that either everybody grows up and really look at the true story that's going on in front of us, or we're going to get stuck in this 12th century mentality that a lot of people want to be in because they don't want to accept what's going on and they think their beliefs dictate reality and they don't. Nobody's beliefs dictate reality, not mine, not yours. And I've had people say, well, not in my reality. Well, what's in your reality that's not in mine? Oh, my parents are in my reality. No, how do you know I don't know your parents? How do you know I can't meet your parents? You can't say just because you haven't experienced some aspect of reality that it doesn't exist. Well, the stuff sitting on Mars is 100% artificial constructions. The stuff in Utah is littered with all kinds of ancient artifacts and sculptures and things. And people look at it, oh, that's natural. No, no, you can't have those many objects in the same area with that kind of detail and go, oh, that's just natural. This stuff is thousands of years old. Is weathered. Mount Rushmore is going to look like the old man in the mountain at some point, thousands of years down the road. And they'll probably dismiss that, the generations that come along. Hey, Keith, (laughs) coming up to the top of the hour. You're all on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. That was Keith Morgan, who was our uh, valued IT expert, audio engineer, worked with Ted Koppel for 30 years, had a chance to uh, have conversations with Mr. Koppel about things that ultimately wound up on the show, including my work. And um, we will pick this up at an epistemological level when we reach the other side, which we will do right after this short break. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. 
Talk Radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, October 24th. Halloween is just a week away, and we have something very special planned, so you're going to want to tune in next Sunday night on the 31st on All Hallows' Eve for a hyperdimensional Halloween. So I want to come back to my guest tonight, uh, Richard Grossinger, because I think uh, what, what Keith was bringing up before the break is something that really is the heart of how I approach this, which is the epistemological, how do we know what we know? Archaeologists here on earth of every stripe, every political persuasion, every, you know, cultural difference have a set of commonalities, uh, particularly when they're looking at aerial or satellite imagery of ancient sites all over the planet for how they determine an artificial ancient set of ruins from a set of random hills. And it's no mystery. It's no secret. I, in fact, I uh, pointed it out in Monuments and uh, Richard Dooley edited it. It's called geometry. The stuff we build, the stuff the human race has built for thousands of years has an organizational quality a mathematical precision which is missing from most of the artificial stuff that we see in aerial photography or in satellite imagery. And simply applying that rule of thumb, look for geometry. It's how we reach the you know 99% confidence level that what we see at Sidonia is, as Keith said, as real as looking down on Los Angeles from the International Space Station. So, Richard, um, that was an interesting interlude. Uh, Thoughts, comments? Uh, Had to unmute my mic. It always helps in space to do that, yes. Well, not only did I unmute the mic, I toppled the uh, standing desk. Oh dear. Um, but okay. So, um, well, that that was a little. Um, I mean, it was fine. I listened with fascination. It was a little out of the blue and and a bit of a non sequitur to, I mean, to what I was saying at that moment. But um, I'm not the um, I'm not the naysayer. I'm the one who first published Richard C. Hoagland and Mark Carlotto and um, have always been a cheerleader for um, exactly what Keith Morgan said. I have have a classmate who very, um, an astronaut classmate, Jeffrey Hoffman, who now teaches at MIT, and I've discussed this with him extensively, and would that I could get him to come on the show. I can't because he will he will listen and say very interesting things, but he will deny this 100% and give as effective an argument as 
Keith Morgan gave on the other side. And I'm not the person to, to debate this because that's not what I do. I don't, um, I, I, I think that Sidonia and the other artifacts and the mathematics and stuff, I like it a lot. I think it's really interesting. Do I think it's a proof as if you were looking down on Los Angeles? I personally don't think so. Well, think wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you there. Why not? If you apply when, exactly the well, same, hang on, hang on. If you apply exactly the same criteria to a photograph taken from the International Space Station of Los Angeles or New York or Houston, any other metropolitan area, and then you apply the same mathematical and geometrical criteria to Sidonia, you come up with the same answer. No, you're not. You're gaming it. I'm sorry, Richard, but you have gamed it from the beginning, and that doesn't mean you're wrong. But when the, it doesn't come out exactly right, you fudge a little angle here and a little angle there, and that's fine because it maybe should be gamed because it's so close, but it is not Los Angeles. I'm sorry. Until Jeffrey Hoffman agrees or any number of other people I mean, I actually, I was telling you before, I participated in a conference at MIT in 2019, small conference, about um, the ETs and, and all this kind of, all, all the subjects around this, the methods of propulsion, how they get here. And I listened to people, there was a guy from CERN, there was a guy from Skunk Works, and they were very articulate about what we know so far and we know an awful lot of stuff that isn't generally agreed to uh, no, isn't generally recognized by most people in the public but no the, the it's geometry can't be used that way and then claim to be proof and when you do that in some ways you muddy the arguments and you 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 create the opposition because you extend beyond the data that you have and you don't let the data you have speak for itself in its own terms. And I'm reminded of a comment in, in another book I edited, which is basically when somebody says that they are absolutely sure and that they have proven something that hasn't been proven, run from that person. Um, because that kind of dogmatism about anything is wrong. Yeah, but and, mainstream and, science is full of that dogmatism. It's replete with it. There are example, things, there are, evolution. You know, how well, many well, biologists, going back to Gaylord Simpson, absolutely affirm that evolution is a random walk, Darwinian, entropic process where the, you know, the survival of the determined species on Earth. And it's dogmatic. I, you cannot find a biologist who says, it except, Keith, Keith, please, except Freeman Dyson, who's not a biologist, he's a physicist, a very brilliant physicist. He admitted years ago that if you actually do the numbers, the odds, they, don't work. they do not work in terms of a random universe just kicking up chemicals by accident until you happen to hit the right mix. And I believe Francis Crick also agreed with him uh, in, in his later years. And Crick was a biologist. Crick is the guy, you know, one of the DNA guys. 
So you got yeah, two. Well, that was the, I made that all. That was the key point of bottoming out the universe that it doesn't bottom out. I guess you have to define bottoming out, and then Gates, well, and hang on, I hang on. I defined it as that you know, for instance, it is the claim of bottoming. Dar, Darwinism is a claim of bottoming it out. That it bottoms out at this algorithm. That you have this. Uh, you have the Big Bang for that. It occurs in the middle of nowhere for no reason. And after that, it's all an algorithmic sort under natural selection. Uh, I would agree that you can sort till infinity and you won't get this. Um, My own feeling, which I write about in that book, is that there are other planes uh, planes of energy or dimensions and that, and that the natural selection does operate but it's being fed by energies on other planes. And without those energies, it couldn't, it couldn't arrive at that. So it's a, it's a convergence of what I argue is etheric energies with physical energies. And, um, and that, and I debated this a lot with uh, Terence Deacon, who's one of the most, I, I would say he's the top neo-Darwinian writing now. His book, Incomplete Nature, hmm. is the absolute best neo-Darwinian but book But you understand that your perspective, and I happen to totally agree, because I've got amazing evidence in support of your model, is at variance with 99.9% of mainstream biology. Right? Uh, well, I would, I would say with 99.9% of mainstream biologists, that the biology that they're talking about is not um, is, is is when they identify professionally with what they're doing, they are creating um, a kind of straw man out of the biology that they're examining. Um, so yeah, okay. So they so they so they are cherry picking the evidence yeah. in the opposition. Right. Okay. Yeah. Let let okay. let's bring Keith back in. Go ahead. The math is, uh, or science is about duplication, being able to duplicate the work of someone else. If they come to the same conclusion, and this can be replicated over and over again, then the conclusion would be that this is what it is. When I found the curve, I had no idea, wasn't thinking about X and Y axis. I showed it to Earl Torn, I showed him the curve, the ray across the curve, and he found the X and Y axis, not by finagling anything. He took the logarithmic function of E graph, laid it down over the area, and everything fell into place. The odds of that taking place are trillions to one, okay? Wait, 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 hang on, hang on. How do we know that? The odds of anything happening are trillions No, they're not. No. Of anything. No, no, no. I guarantee you, I I will give you an experiment that is 100% guaranteed to produce the result I'm going to predict, okay? You're sitting in your studio, in your office, surrounded by stuff, right? Probably some books. Uh, We're doing a thought experiment. No, we're doing a real physical experiment. Do you have a book on the desk, Candy? You want me to find... I've actually emptied out this entire office because I moved it to Bar Harbor. Okay, I want you to pick up something that will not break. Okay. All right. I will pick up a um, stapler. 
Okay, I wouldn't do that. Or you think that's, that might break. Um, oh, there's a book. Okay, Good. I have a box of books headed to what I'm taking with me. I picked okay. up Yoga right. Civilization and Transition, that's including a, that's a, that's a, UFO. What? It's a perfect book. Okay, now sit back in your chair. Hold the book out to the side so that there's empty floor under it. And what I'm going to tell you is 100% guaranteed it's going to happen. When you open your hand, the book will fall. How do I know? I'm not in the room. I don't even know what the house looks like. I know it because of Newton's laws. I know it because of gravity, because of equations, because of two, 300 years of empirical and theoretical science. It's as close to 100% certainty that when you open your hand, that book is going to hit the floor. That's different from what Keith just No, did. it's not. It's identical. It's it all identical. It's in the math. I'm not, I'm not enough of a mathematician to tell you why. You're outside my skill set, but I intuitively know it's not identical. And what you're missing is somebody who would, would argue the opposite. And again, I'm not the disbeliever. I'm the one who got behind all this material and all these books. Well, let's take all. We're not even, Richard. We're not talking about personalities here. We're talking about well, it's not epistemology. It's not. The epistemology is how do we know what we know? Yes, Keith. Go ahead. Yeah, but you're you're using it's sort of you're fudging definitions here. The epistemology is a much broader, open-ended topic. It's not going to come to a conclusion about this. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying we don't know. And that, uh, that this whole thing of, of trying to make it look as though something's definite takes away from what's really interesting about it, which is that it's a mystery. I can take this Morgan curve. I can take the, the graph that I created by dropping circles on the mounds that make up the curve and the X and Y axis. I can take and group that together, resize it. It fits over top of the European Space Agency's orthographically corrected image of Sidonia. I can take it, put it over the thymus image of the Mars Odyssey image of Sidonia, and it keeps fitting again and again and again and again, okay? I'm not changing anything. I didn't know about the X and Y axis. wasn't thinking about it. Earl found that. And when he found it, told me what he did. It's, it's high school geometry. I took my ruler and went, jump, jump. There's the X and Y axis. And hang on. For those that may not know who this Errol Torin is that Keith mentions, he was, the, he was a cartographer at the Defense Mapping Agency, which basically was tasked under the Department of Defense for plotting Russian missile bases so that we could, you know, target uh, overwhelming missile attacks against the Russians back during the height of the Cold War. So he used this geometry in mathematics in an everyday sense to keep the United States safe from communism. And he simply looked at, at, Earl, at uh, Keith's curve and said, oh, I know what that is, and applied a standard algorithm and the so-called exponential E exponential curve the morgan curve popped out with neither party knowing beforehand what they were looking at the numbers the pure numbers became the driver of the inquiry 
by Mr. Gross and Sherry. Just look at the animation. And well, it, let's, let, let us not beat this poor dog to death because okay. I have a lot of other stuff I want to talk to Richard about, okay? Let me, let, me, let me ask one more question in this area, then let's get back to bottoming out the universe. You said that looking at L.A. from orbit was not the same as looking at Sidonia from orbit. What's the difference? Um, well, I think that answers itself. Um, I know that with the, the rebuttal to what I would say would be that 500, whatever it is, 500 million years, or five, I forget how many years it is, lie in between them. And if you could el- eliminate that gap, they would look the same. Um, I'm, again, I'm the one who published all this stuff. And in my own books, in the night sky, for instance, I wrote all this and, 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 and made this argument, but I didn't make it because I thought it was proven. I made it because I thought it was interesting and that it had, um, it had potential to... Well, maybe um, then I should phrase the question differently. At what point, given that you accept all kinds of things around you and in Bar Harbor and in the United States and on the planet as real, what is your criteria for things that are real? In other words, what puts L.A. in a totally different category for you than Sidonia? Um, again, the question answers itself. There's moving traffic. There, um, there are, um, there are um, all the things that clearly indicate, um, you know, intelligent life in the universe, sentient beings in L.A. And, uh, and what you have on Mars is a really interesting anomalous bunch of stuff that to which all different sorts of geometric, algorithmic, algebraic um, um, formulas, grids, you know, this isn't my territory. I'm, I'm just speaking off the top of my head, can be applied. And I've always been a supporter and defender of that. What I'm not a supporter and defender of is that anything's been proven. It, it may be the opening to a totally different mystery. Um, interestingly, the next podcast I'm doing is next week with a guy I'm publishing, Bernie Beitman, who's known as Dr. Coincidence. He's a psychiatrist in Virginia who specializes in analyzing synchronicities. And um, I feel that some of this material comes from um, from the synchronicity realm. And uh, one of the things that we do is we go into the unknown realm, you know, the realm that Jung referred to as a causal cause, and we then try and pull the material back into the causal Newtonian thermodynamic realm and say we've proved something, whereas what we've proven is that there's a link between two different kinds of thought systems. And um, my only objection is to saying that it's resolved. Um, it's an, I don't think it's resolved. You think it's resolved. Well, wait, 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 wait. When we say it's resolved, aren't we talking about audiences? In other words, for you as an audience of one, it's not resolved. For the literally tens, thousands of people, I'm probably underestimating all over the world, 
who are doing this with every NASA, you know, image release. They go to the archive, you know, raw image websites. They download them. They look for geometry. They look for correspondences. They look for things that look familiar. There's got to be more scientists and amateur scientists by far who would take the opposite viewpoint. Of, of whom? Of what of of the tens of thousands that you're describing, yeah, but it's since not when, a majority. But, but it's not but, a majority view. But since when? To, but but since when was numbers ever a majority numbers game? It used to be that the church. Well, one you're, guy, you can't have it both. One ways. guy you can't say that there are tens of thousands of people and then say that it's not a numbers because game. they've all independently arrived at this conclusion. No one has led them. No one has put them in the choir. No one has co-opted their independence. Right. It's a synchronicity. It could be a synchronicity as opposed to a causal discovery. So they're all looking from all over the world at, at the same imagery and they're all coming uniquely. Well, it's a selected group because there are many more people looking at the same imagery who don't see it. No, they're not. They're not looking. That's the point. Everybody who looks is an overwhelming percentage go, holy crap, what is that? You well, have to, I went, you I have to pay attention. I, I did exactly the same thing, too. All I'm saying is it's not proven what it is. All right, then we get to the nub, which is, what is your criteria for proof? Where most people believe something? Most people used to believe the world is flat. And we kind of now know that's wrong. Well, there's a subcategory of people for some reason, who think the world is still flat, which I really find fascinating at some weird level, but uh, most people now believe the world is round. How do they reach that conclusion? Well, we should ask Shatner that. He went up. <laughs> he looked out the window. He could tell you whether it's flat or round, but are people going to accept what he says? It's all about a perception, and a lot of people will dismiss something when it doesn't fit what they want to see. And I'm telling you, I found that by accident. And if I found it by accident, it's, it's not because I was looking for it. I just put the, the picture in a copy machine. It came out black and white. And the objects that caught my eye were all standing out as white. Everything else went black. And I played connected dots. And I said, oh, it makes almost a half a circle. Then I measured the distance, and they were spaced exponentially, except the fifth mound didn't fit the exponential spacing. But if I skipped it and went to the sixth mound, it was perfectly double the distance between the third and fourth. Yeah, and but what did you discover? You didn't discover Martians. You didn't, no, it, I you didn't, the way that you would discover Los Angelinos or whatever you'd call them. They weren't there. You okay, okay. I, I think we're getting at an interesting level here because the reason – you just said the magic words, Richard. You said – and Los Angelinos, all right? The difference between Los Angeles, and it probably was a very bad example on my part. I should have picked some ancient abandoned ruin in the Middle East where there's nobody living. It's just <laughs> walls and, you know, foundations and that kind of stuff. But let's stick with Los Angeles. The difference is ground truth. We know we look down from orbit on Los Angeles that it's alive, that there's people, that there's civilization, because we, we are there. There are people that live there. We talk to them on the phone, on the computer, on Twitter, whatever. There's no doubt in anybody's mind Los Angeles is inhabited by 
and that I could use the Sagan joke here, <clears throat> may be intelligent beings. The problem with Mars, we have no ground truth yet, but we will. So are you saying, Dr. Grossinger, that no, you, that you not will that. not well, – I'm putting on your anthropological <laughs> hat – that we will not know about Mars or Sidonia until Elon Musk lands a starship and the guys spill out of the airlocks and go, holy crap, look at this. Yeah, I mean I've written about that, about that moment a number of times. Um, so I'm all for it. And by the way, just because – But is that what you're saying? This, is that realized what you're saying? That I posted online that we were going to talk about um, your experience with animals communicating from the realm of the dead, and we're not talking about that. Well, we do have three hours, so. Um, well, yeah, okay. But um, <laughs> uh, we're going around in circles. I'm, I'm, I'm not – I'm not the um, the enemy here on this topic. We could certainly no get one is a making you, Richard. On Richard, there. no one is making you. The I enemy. just am saying you haven't proven to what, you what these geometry geometries mean. We haven't they proven mean something totally different. But we haven't proven it to you. So let me go to another avenue of the conversation. You talked about synchronicities, and you publishing a book by a psychiatrist who's certified, you know, credential, whatever. And he's obviously done a deep dive into synchronicities. What is his conclusion, uh, building on the Jungian idea that synchronicities are meaningful coincidence? I think it's a work in progress. Um, it's, he's still exploring it, and he has a monthly podcast where he has really interesting people on. He had Deepak Chopra on recently to discuss the nature of coincidence because it hasn't really been gone into deeply enough. But to stick to the example that we're talking about, what I, what I think and have always thought is that the information from Mars and from within the solar system is pointing to something beyond our understanding. And I think that to say that it's pointing to cities on Mars or habitation is to limit the possibility of what it could be pointing to. And it's also playing directly into the hands of people who want to say it, it amounts to nothing. It, it, it's, it's sort of forcing the information you have to make a story that fits the stories we've, we know and been telling ourselves when we're dealing with the unknown, where all sorts of different stories could evolve from the, this sort of material. And I just find it retro to have to come up at Sidonia on Mars with something that fits an Earth narrative. What if well, there's got a lot of stuff here on this planet that they have dismissed and shucked off as artificial, I mean a natural, not, and it's not artificial. And I look at them and I'm good. There's too many details like the Badlands Guardian. Do you know about that? Well, we don't have don't. time. Hang on. We're literally at the bottom of the hour. Yeah, and I, do want to get, I don't want to get distracted, Keith. We could go on like this forever. I want to give Richard the time. I want to talk about some things we've not talked about, including communications that are, shall we say, unusual to say the least. 
but that seem to have a common language, which is how I believe I've been able to look at and say it represents communication as opposed to just noise. So let's, let's, let's kind of hold it there. My guest this morning is Richard Grossinger, anthropologist, book publisher, writer extraordinaire, who has um, engaged in a very interesting and totally um, honest argument. But I think what we've distilled over the last half hour is that after working on this for decades, having published five iterations of the Monuments of Mars, Richard is still in the, it's in my break basket as opposed to it's there or it's not there camp. And that's totally legitimate, totally. What I'm intrigued with is at what point does the evidence become conclusive? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The site is midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 per hour of content. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, October 24th. My guest this morning is Richard Grossinger, and we're having a, um, well, as Dr. Kissinger would have said, a wide-ranging discussion. I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this idea of, of synchronicity and coincidence because it gets into that fuzzy, almost Heisenberg area of indeterminacy at one point do the number of coincidences multiply because you don't add them, you multiply them to the point where, you know, it's like 99% that something interesting is going on. Does your author deal with this or have you dealt with it or have you both talked about it? No, that's in the future. I I've gone as far as reading some of his material, deciding it was interesting. He hasn't written the book yet. And, um, so I don't, I can't be more concrete about that, but 
noticed that I, what struck me is you said what we agree on, which is that something interesting is happening. Um, I, um, you know, I remember way back when, when I first walk, went over to your house and heard you tell the story of Sedona, um, I, um, I you mean came, Sedonia, Sedonia. Yeah. Um, when I, uh, I think it was a day or two later, I, it was around Christmas time and I heard, um, I heard silent night on the radio and it lined up with, um, the image of the face on Mars. And it just really gave me the chills as I thought of the, the ancientness of this and the depth of the mystery which is like the mystery uh, of the uh, the mystery of the origin of our own consciousness painted on cave walls that doesn't even go back a fraction of the time to the to the face of Sidonia and um it still holds that um kind of wonder for me and i'm i really threw myself into the Carlotto and Torin um, um, kind of quasi, you know, partial proofs anyway, but it's still to me a mystery and it's, it's more interesting as a mystery. And I've been on a couple of your shows before and it just sort of rubs me the wrong way to try to pretend that we have figured it out. It, it, it's, seems a kind of hubris well wait, 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 when you say figure it out to me the figuring it out is being able to tell the story i have some glimmers but i wouldn't pretend for an instant to know what happened in any detail the only thing i'm certain of tonight is there's stuff on mars far beyond sidonia most of it now discovered by other people that i've never talked to they've never talked to me mm-hmm. they found it independently it's all over. There was an extraordinary global ancient series, not just one, but series of Martian civilizations. And we've got stuff from all over the solar system showing epics in the past where somebody built stuff that's absolutely transcendent and amazing. And the agency knows, NASA knows, they're just not telling us yet because part of my political model is they're all waiting for a certain cosmic clock to strike midnight before it's permissible or time, a la Brookings, to tell us the truth. And that's why I'm looking yeah, well, at... Well, this is a narrative. I think it's a really good narrative, but it is a narrative. And Well, like the I'm only part of the narrative is it is real. It, we have no idea it who... It isn't real. It's a narrative. No, it's real based None of on... None it is real. Based on, to you, based on the mathematics, to a whole bunch of other people, it's real. It's a huge jump from the mathematics to the narrative. No, it's not. It's not at all. It's a huge jump. When you say narrative, we're talking story. Who were they? Where do they come from? How do they evolve? Were there more than one? What level of consciousness? Or is they... it a they? Or I think that most of the action, I mean, it's just a personal opinion, most of the action in the solar system is occurring on other planes and that that these planets like Jupiter and Neptune, which are totally uninhabitable on this plane, are probably on the 
etheric and astral and monadic planes filled with parties, as my friend John Freelander would say, it would be like walking into that bar at Star Wars. Um, it would be so full of action. Okay, what question, we're setting, question, we just question, see question. like 900 mile an hour Question, wind. question, question, question. Why would other dimensional entities on other planes even need planets? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't have the answer. I, I think that I think that curvature itself is a fundamental form of reality and that it's the first thing we get. It's curvature that's driving uh, gravity, that's uh, driving space and probably time too. And it's what makes planets spheres. And I imagine that it represents in this realm laws that on, uh, that on other levels um, and in, in mysteries described in many of the world's religions, like in the Hindu Vedas and the Hebrew Zohar, where um, and and in the uh, and in the whole Gnostic tradition, where the relationship of how consciousness transmigrated from these other realms to here, that it it did so and it terraformed this place, it terraformed Earth in the process of moving, of, um, as uh, Steiner said, like um, spiritual evolution descended to meet physical evolution ascending. Okay, and hang on, hang on, let me stop, Keith, please. Why don't I then ask the next question, which is, <coughs> if these entities, higher dimensional entities, right? That's what we're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If they could terraform in three dimensions, Earth, why not Mars? Why not Venus? Why not any quasi-terrestrial, almost habitable planet on both sides of us, in toward the sun and out toward the you know outer dark, have both gone to hell in a handbasket? The only yeah, well, you, well, you answered that question many years ago for me, Richard, when I asked it in a different way, and you said even aliens have budgets. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that a great line? Oh yeah. Well, that's that's aliens who are limited to three-dimensional, you know, energy flows. Even, even multi-dimensional aliens have budgets. Mm. I have a great line, totally irrelevant, that Ehud, the publisher of Inner Traditions, said the other day, and is a great line mainly because he's a very spiritual dude. He said, anyone who says money isn't everything doesn't know where to shop. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously a very interesting materialist, okay. Let, let, let me, uh, Keith, you had one little line you wanted to ask? Uh, yeah. It's, um, we, we look at things from different perspectives. Obviously, we see everything differently. But when you, you look at something and you see a square – and it's a perfect square, but you look maybe a half a mile away and you see another square, which is exactly the same size and dimension as the first one you saw. Then you look maybe a mile further and you see another square, exactly the same size, exactly the same shape. You've got three objects that appear to be the exact same thing. So how many more of those do you need to see before you start to say, this looks like a pattern. You go two miles, and there's another square. 
go four miles, not a square. When you start seeing a pattern like that, when you start to say, this is artificial, I think this was deliberately done. When do you start to, to really handle on it? Because it's like flipping a two-headed coin. You flip the coin you know, 10 times and you get 10 heads, that means that it's two-headed coin because you can't do that. You flip it 20 times, you've got 20 heads. That tells you that the coin is double-sided and something is wrong. Because the- well, we're going around in the same circle, and, and we're not the right group of three people to be resolving the circle. It's not I, a- I, said, yeah. I said like a year ago, what we need is to recruit somebody who will go on the show and make a substantial counter-argument so this, to make it interesting. I'm not going to make a substantial counter-argument. I'm just going to point out that, that we're, we're in the business of gaming this. And that we'll do anything define, we can. Define what you mean by gaming. You know what you know the outcome you want to arrive at, so you sell yourself on the fact that you're arriving at it neutrally, um, and you're not taking into account either so the basic Freudian or even or Jungian principles as well about how the mind tricks itself into making stories about things. And I'm not saying the story is wrong. I'm just saying that, that this is a story being derived out of, um, out of looking at the past and at past patterns to say something about an unknown series of related events. And I don't think it helps to keep going around in this particular circle because, as I said, it would be much better than me to have somebody who wasn't um, basically a supporter of this is really interesting. What I am complaining about, um, and I've always complained about this, Richard, going back to the beginning, is I think that when you force the argument past where it really goes, you lose a lot of the people you need as supporters. Because yeah, but now, are, you're making, now you're making a political as opposed to scientific argument? Well, it's scientific in that I think that it's forcing the data. Um, I think that it's cherry-picking the data and that those squares that are here, then there, then there, that they're not necessarily pure squares and that there's all sorts of other objects in between them that don't look like squares. Then how do professional archaeologists, I'm thinking of, one in particular, her name is Susan from, I think, the University of Alabama. She's now using satellite archaeology to find ancient ruins in Egypt up and down the Nile. I know. It's well, she's using exactly the same technique and methodology we are. The difference is we know there were intelligent beings creating pyramids on well, Earth. She knows what she's looking for, whereas we don't know what we're yes, looking we for. Yes, we do. We're looking for replicating regular geometry. You're looking for Egypt. No, we're not. We're looking for regular repeating geometry. In other words, it gets back to the epistemology. Look, let me move the conversation. And Keith, I really kind of would like to do the rest of this by myself. Let's, let's, Let's talk about UFOs, okay? You made a very interesting statement a few minutes ago. You said UFOs are real, to which I'm going to ask 
How do you know? How do I know? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't actually know. You said categorically UFOs are real. I I believe that they they have passed the point of – that I, they're past a tipping point that I don't see the Mars material. So talk about the – exactly. Talk about the tipping point. I want to know your personal – I'm sure I'm going to walk into an – No, 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 no. This, 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 this is a friendly conversation. Come on. I know. It's a friendly conversation. This, this kind of discussion is not my skill set, so, but I'll do it. You write books um, about this stuff. Not, the, not this. What? How do we I know mean, what I we write, know? I write open-ended stuff that, that – what I write about is the mystery. All right. Talk um, about what, the, what, what crystallized – I'm very convinced by, by the fact that you've got things that show up on, on radar, and it's says Jacques Vallée, who you know, we both know, um, that, that it's, it's deposited metal um, or mineral of some sort, and you can take it to a lab and analyze it, and it couldn't have been made on Earth. That, to me, is past the tipping point. Well, when you said UFOs, it encompasses everything from things that go bump in the night, distant lights moving around, to Mm -hmm. artifacts, you know, debris, you know, retrievals of something physical, to people who have claimed to have been abducted by occupants of, quote, UFOs. In that melange of evidence... What was your tipping point to where you could say, as you did a few moments ago, UFOs are real? Well, I, I think that it's, it's, it's sort of it's a gradual accumulation of things that ultimately tips over. Like when I said I was at that, um, that conference at MIT in 2019, the fact that the physicists there were arguing, were like arguing for faster than light travel and levitation. Um, convinced me that that people who knew a lot more about physics than I did possible that was added to the tipping point. What so wait, wait, hang the, on, hang on. Let, let's dissect this carefully. So you're trusting the credibility of other people in areas you're not an expert in yourself, and you're judging the reality by yeah. their testimony as opposed to your own personal investigation. I don't have any direct experience with UFOs. Okay. And you haven't been to Mars. I know. I, I mean, I know what the <laughs> counter argument is, but still, you haven't been to Mars. I wish you could go to Mars. I wish um, that Elon Musk would fly you to Mars. Um, sort of like you, you would be the William Shatner of the of the of the Mars tourism. But well, there's little, artificial stuff much far. There's artificial stuff far. much closer on the moon. So, you know, if, if the Starship gets its act together, if the AFAA actually lets him test it mm-hmm. and it doesn't get embroiled in endless political problems here on Earth, uh, there will be missions going around the moon. And that's all I need is a seat to look down and, you know, talk about it live as we see it, as we photograph it. Yeah, we can have the other side of midnight from, from you know, what would you call it? Um, you could have it from lunar orbit. The far side of the moon. Yeah. Wouldn't that be interesting? Okay, let's go back to the UFO thing. So you think the body of evidence, and I presume under the 
category of evidence you're including witness testimony yeah. you know optical measurements film radar what bill mm-hmm. nelson is referring to pilot you know witnessing all of this the gestalt says for you it's now more likely real than not real yeah okay, okay. but that's only the reality or non-reality you have no idea what ufos i.e vehicles built by intelligence or disembodied ultra-dimensional entities really are or their story or their background or their narrative right and i don't pretend to be able to tell it and i don't pretend to be able to tell the story of mars all i'm saying is tonight the evidence says the stuff on mars is real who made it where they came from what their intentions were what their relationship is to us that's all up for grabs and is part of the book we're working on mm-hmm. and that i'm behind so we can you almost think, said you almost said that i'm going to publish didn't you well i could say that i could say i intend to publish it um cool i i see no reason i mean i'm not in charge anymore but um i don't I, you have your own imprint I, sacred planet i do and i can select for that imprint but i saw people over me one person over me um who who says yay or nay at the end but no they would say yay on this i would think but, so but given yeah. how much money monuments made well, and also they've published their own uh, Mars books that write about you, and um, and they might as well have the horse's mouth if they're going to write about the horse. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. That was a break in the pattern. Um, so, but we should we should get to our topic. We should make this sort of. We've been um, in our topic, yeah. so let's move no, from. Because we're hang on, hang on. We're going to disappoint the people who want us to hear about the other topic. Well, we, look. As, as soon as we get to the idea that UFOs are real, regardless of who they are, where they're from, <laughs> even if they're other other dimensional, that moves us right into the realm that I wanted to focus on tonight, which is consciousness. And the fact that we are surrounded by a consciousness that most people on the planet, Richard, do not believe is conscious. Otherwise, they would treat animals a lot better and they wouldn't eat them. And yet you and I know from our own experience base that they are not only conscious, but they're capable of extraordinary things. And it's the extraordinary part that I want to get into. Yeah, and I hope that you can open the next segment but with your own experience which you only referred to to me but unless it's too personal no 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 i've talked to this audience about it and you know, i don't okay. want to bore them but i will you know list some of the evidence because okay. because the evidence is pretty to use a grossinger term interesting <laughs> it's not my term <laughs> i have some terms but no. okay we got about 10 minutes where do you want to go in the last 10 minutes of this segment well, let's go there. I mean, why wait? Um, I, I think that I think that um, how to say it. There, there is a kind of a segue here. I, I'm just kind of reaching a little bit through a glass darkly to this. I've been talking a lot to Keith Thompson lately um, because I'm I'm going to work with him on redeveloping his book on uh, uh, angels and aliens. Can't remember yeah, I was going to say, remind people who Keith Thompson is. Um, years ago, um, 
right, was this before? It was right at the time I met you, Keith Thompson put on a conference in San Francisco called Angels, Aliens, and Archetypes that asked these very basic questions back then. And his book out of that conference was published in the early 90s called, I think, Angels and Aliens, and went out of print a bunch of years later. And now... Was this the one at the Palace of Fine Arts? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was Elise Agar. She was the one who really did it. Thompson just took credit. Well, I don't know if he took credit. That may be me taking credit for him because I misunderstood. No, she organized it. Yeah, Yeah, because that name is familiar, Elise Agar. So probably she organized it. Well, maybe it's more that Keith was the participant, and then he's probably listening to this in Boise and saying, (laughs) no, no, Richard. Don't implicate me in, in this. So no, Keith, I'm not implicating you. I probably got that wrong. Yeah, and I but actually, anyhow, I actually he, presented at a, a conference, and I presented a kind I of know. a meta theory for Sidonia being really far out. Yeah. Well, the thing that the thing that Keith pointed to, which I think is is like a little bit of a gateway, is that so many people who have had UFO experiences or abduction experiences also have had experiences of communications with whatever you'd call it, the astral realm or with spirits or with the dead. Um, And that the relationship between these two is operating at a level of implied depth that, that suggests to me that the whole discussion is pointing to a much bigger picture. Um, Let's see. I did the program for it and displayed my art there. That's Kinsia. Yeah. Um, yeah. Putting that across the screen. Yeah. I feel as though what the what we're really into at this point, as we pass through COVID, as the very first tiny telltale indicator of a paradigm shift, is opening the door to the actual reality we're in, the actual universe, the multiverse, or creation that we're in that in our hearts we know we're in, in our souls we know we're in, but that we're trapped in this highly materialized and now algorithmicized civilization that um, kind of blinds us to that reality. And we're walking around sort of knowing that we're connected to this bigger thing. Um, and I think part of my resistance to the to your own to just encapsulate its Sidonia narrative is that it's it's a little bit too um, uh, too like like um, Star Trekians outer spacey or Lucifer conspiracy or or what's the guy David uh, Icky um, David uh, Ike Ike David Ike um, that, that it's a little too much in that direction I want to see it more in the direction of a real opening into um, a kind of transformation of our consciousness into a larger consciousness that recognizes where we come from as incarnate beings and where we're going as spirits who know who we are. Well, um, in the next hour, we can get into some details because one of the amazing things that my Sidonia work led me to through the math and geometry was the whole hyperdimensional torsion field physics model. 
And I'm going to quote a, a friend of ours that you know, Stan Tenen, who said many, many years ago, you know, the difference between fake stuff and real stuff is that when you turn the crank on real stuff, new real stuff comes out. I do not believe I could have followed the physics of Sidonia to any worthwhile conclusion, including the idea of higher dimensional realities where consciousness may reside. If I had not looked at the math and geometry on Mars and said, this is real, and then went looking for examples on okay, Earth. But let's not get trapped there again. Let's, when we start up for the last hour, I call I call it the Martian out. I call it the Martian doorway, because it totally goes beyond what's on Mars to what is the meaning. Why should we give a damn okay, about well, what's don't on Mars? Okay, tie it to Mars. Tie it to the experiences you've had here on Earth with sentient beings on Earth. What if I told you, and we're coming up to the top of the hour. That when Robin died two and a half years ago, I have a house which has house guests. They're called mice. And in one of the large pyramids I've been using to experiment with the physics, with clocks, rate of time flow and all of that, uh, prescinding from our measurements, where Robin and I would go around the world and measure sacred sites with the Accutron, someone, and it ain't me, has been rearranging the treatise, bits of plants and dust and whatever on the base of this pyramid. It's a big open frame pyramid. They've been arranging it in the geometries of Sidonia and the same geometry is the geometry of hyperdimensional physics and connection. And you tell me who's doing that. Either I've got an incredible number of genius level mice or Someone has been using them as transducers, as conduits to talk to me in the language of mathematics to let me know that, in fact, this is real. It reminds me of Stephen King's Green Mile. Doesn't it? We are at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Richard Grossinger, and we're having a high old time talking about consciousness now it's going to be the focus of our next hour and so i kind of thought this was appropriate take a listen and see if you recognize who's singing chatting to a chimp and chimpanzee imagine talking to a tiger chatting to a cheetah <laughs> what a neat achievement that would be talk to the animals learn their languages Maybe take an animal degree. I'd study elephant and eagle, buffalo and beagle, alligator, guinea pig, and flea. I would converse in polar bear and python. And I would curse in truant kangaroo. If people ask me, can you speak rhinoceros? I'd say, of course, yes. Can't you? <laughs> I conferred with our furry friends, man to animal. Think of the amazing repartee. If I could walk with the animal, talk with the animal, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animal, and they could talk to me. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Crocodiles for tea. Or maybe lunch with two or three lions, walruses, or sea lions. What a lovely place the world would be. spoke slang to a ragtime. The advantages any fool on earth could plainly see. Discussing Eastern art and dramas with intellectual llamas, that's a big step forward, you agree. I'd learn to speak in antelope and turtle. My Pekingese would be extremely good. If I were asked to say hippopotamus, I'd say why not enough. And would, if I could parley with pachyderm, it's a fairy tale worthy of Pandanderson or Grimm. A man who walks with the animal, talks with the animal, grunts and squeaks and squawks with the animal. This is the most exciting thing that ever happened to me, Polynesia. I can't wait to start. It's incredible. It's impossible. But it's true. A man can talk to the animal. It's a miracle. In a year from now, I guarantee, I'll be the marvel of the mammal. Play chess with camels. No more just a boring old MD. I'll study every living creature's language so I can speak to all of them on sight. If friends say, can he talk in crab or pelican? You'll say, like helica. And you'll be right. And if you just stop to think of it, there's no doubt of it, I shall win a place in history. For I can walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals. Uh. And they can squeak and squawk and speak and talk to me. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. Richard, when did you figure out crows are intelligent? Well, I didn't figure it out. I I have always been interested in them. And I years ago, I watched those YouTube videos of them solving puzzles. But I guess just internally in my own sort of maturity or something, 
that it became not just an idea, but an experience. And maybe after we only moved to Bar Harbor a year ago, and um, there just was such an abundance of crows that I began um, switching my own frequency to try and be closer to their frequency. And um, I just began to feel it, uh, feel it internally more. Um, feel the connection to them. It didn't change what I knew because I was reading about it in books. And I think you saw, I wrote about it extensively in the manuscript um, that um, it, it, I think, I think knowing it and then watching the crows for a long time is, is radicalizing in a way that you, you, at least for me, my sense of my own psyche and my own participation in this reality among with other incarnated beings shifted and that's what changed talk more like like what do you have specific examples stories if i were to give examples and stories i i wouldn't i wouldn't go there it's it's hard for me to make this shift so in this in this way and personalize it in this way i i can try i think we're in short sound too short soundbike segments to do it i'll do it this way um you i think you know that the family i come from all my other blood relatives committed suicide my mother brother and sister not as adults so uh, my my mother was the youngest at 55 and my sister the oldest at 64 and I'm now 13 years older than her I was raised in the same family and given the same imprinting and I've had to deal with those energies my whole life and one of the things that has driven my relationship to uh, the world and my own existence and the family I created, like with my own children, has been to try and um, assimilate this experience. And um, in the process of doing that over a lifetime, what what's happened is that what is in some ways a trauma has become an opening and has made me more aware of the the thin lines dividing forms of consciousness from each other, dividing life and death from each other. And um, I'm condensing a lot altogether, but I think I told you that I went through this um, 850-day depression that ended about a year ago. And during that time, I had all sorts of experiences, like paranormal experiences, and memories that I won't call past life memories because I don't actually know what they were, but they weren't from this existence. And they underlay the entire like family constellation that this comes from. And only when I went through that and took the full journey, did I get out the other side? And I didn't actually think I was going to survive it because nobody else did. Nobody else in the family survived it. So, when I came out the other side was when we had moved to Bar Harbor. It was right after we moved there. And I also happen to think that Bar Harbor has an energy vortex 
that uh, there's a whole following of that among people who live there or come there. But that's when I began tuning into the crows. And at the same time, I wasn't just tuning into the crows. I was turning into this much larger vortex that of myself, the family I was born into, these animals which were showing up right there in, in, in the now, in the present moment. Um, and at that moment, and here's where it becomes literary for me, there's, there's a shared inspiration. I don't know for sure anymore that that crow is mine than that the nightingale was John Keats's. But in that moment, there's a lesson transmitted that um, I could attribute to the crow or I could just attribute to my own imaginality. Um, and, um, and I don't care at that point because I'm on a journey and the journey is a mysterious journey and for that matter, meeting you in 1986 and finding out and looking at the face on Mars, it was right after the first version of my book, The Night Sky, was published by Sierra Club. Looking at that and feeling that mystery in my bones was the same as all these other mysteries. And it's the representation of that that brings me on the one hand to just a, a broad revelation that has no name but keeps opening out and attaching itself to each new thing and at the same time can be as specific as a crow sitting on the fence talking and calling other crows to come to sit beside it because i put really good stuff in the compost pile <laughs> and the moments come together and that's what life is uh that, that's the moment. I was telling a friend this story uh, a week ago. I, I, the last day I was in Bar Harbor before I came down to Portland, I stopped at the farmer's market and I was going to get a pumpkin for, um, for, Thanksgiving, for, for, Thanksgiving, for Halloween. And I, I, I saw three pumpkins there. I saw no pumpkins at any stand, three at one stand. And I assumed, oh, well, there are a lot more. So I picked the biggest one, which was $15, and I handed um, the money to the woman. And this little boy was so excited, and she said he's been waiting for two hours for someone to buy one of his pumpkins, and that he raised these three pumpkins. Tommy had raised the three pumpkins, and he was handed the money, and it was much too big for me to carry home, which was only two blocks. So I went and got the car and came back. And when I came back, I brought him a children's book that I had published many years ago and handed it to him. And it was like, that was magical to him. Not only did he sell his pumpkin, but the person who ate, but it was the biggest one, he got the money, the person who bought it brought him this book. And when I looked up at the sky, the blue sky after that, the energy coming out of that sky kind of into my body and through my third eye, that was like the same opening. And it's really like moments like that through which I see all of this. And I pull it back into the, uh, that's why to me it's a mystery. It's a magical journey. It's, an un, it's a personal unfolding. And that's what I'm interested in. 
And I love the science fiction story and I love the genre you've created. And I do think that you have created your own genre and it's a brilliant genre. And I also, and I hope you don't feel insulted by this, wish that those stupid parents of yours had um, sent you to MIT themselves instead of putting you whatever they did. I feel as though what they did is something like the film my daughter just made. She just made a film, Kajillionaire, well, a little while ago anyway, about, um, about parents who I think behaved much the way your parents did and didn't really, didn't really let you become who you should have been, which was twice Carl Sagan. Um, and I do feel that honestly, which is why I'm here. So, okay, you take it from there. Well, um, I, of course, live in the middle of a wonderful desert with a gorgeous view of the Sandias. And a couple, three days ago, a crow flew over, and I'm at the edge of a canyon with this gorgeous valley between me and the mountain. And he or she is flying back and forth, almost like a search pattern, and emitting exactly the same cawing. And it was very clear just from a phenomenological point of view, that this crow was looking for something or more precisely someone and was calling and waiting for an answer and kept flying back and forth, the same intonations. Now, can I prove that it was consciously looking for someone, probably a mate, because crows mate for life, uh, so we now know? Uh, No, but it's, highly likely he or she was looking for something that would answer this call because the call kept repeating as far as I could tell. And I kind of have a musical background, so notes stick in my mind. Um, The the same phonemes, the same uh, musicality to this call. And, you know, you hear all different kinds of calls from birds and particularly even the same species. So this was repeated over and over again, almost like it was either an identifier, a name, or a where are you, or are you out there? Or In other words, it, it looked like it was very specific, a crow flying low, back and forth, looking and trying to get a response. Now, I cannot hang my hat on that that was intelligent behavior. But to return the idea to the mice, if the crow had demonstrated the same proficiency with equilateral triangles and right triangles and the awareness of inside the pyramid versus outside the pyramid that the mice are doing, so they're talking in a language of mathematics and geometry, which remember going back to Drake and Sagan was their paradigm that the only thing we would have in common with Alien consciousness was the universe, the same mathematics, the same topology, the same geometry. I would say that the odds that my mice are communicating something intelligent are orders of magnitude larger than my example of the crow. Do I discount one in favor of the other? No, because the situations are totally different. The mice appear to be communicating, again, in a structure which I've measured around the world with Robin is active at a hyperdimensional level, inputs an energy that's not 
understandable in terms of current Maxwellian physics and electromagnetism, the mice are, are basically communicating that fundamental geometry and it's the same geometry that's the layout of the structures at Sidonia. Yeah, um, I believe that. Um, but see, I, I can't prove it. Kintia said, well, said to me, said to me months ago, sorry to interrupt. She said, well, why don't you just take some pictures? I said, no one's going to believe I'm not doing this myself unless well, I could catch them in the act. And it's like poltergeists. They never, <laughs> they never behave when you're looking. It's always I would come out in the morning and the geometry would be rearranged. Um, I have another example, which is even more mind boggling. Uh, if you want to go there, you got to go back to the other side of midnight to my section of radio with pictures. Remember you get there by clicking on tonight's banner at the other side of midnight.com that takes you to the guest page under it. You'll see fast links to items. Click on Richard. That will take you to my items uh, and item number four. If you click on it, it gets bigger and you click on it again, it gets real big. This is where we're going to have another interesting Donnybrook. Because what we've discovered in the NASA high-resolution Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter images mirrored by the European Mars Express spacecraft imagery of, of Jezero Crater, where the Perseverance lander has been set down. And the southern part of the crater which you can see in number four when you click on it once, that'll give you a kind of a wide angle view. The top panel is color. The middle, the second panel is black and white. The third panel is a comparison with Giza on the Giza Plateau, the three pyramids, and the three belt stars of Orion. The fourth and, and fifth are smaller versions mirrored, all done by our uh, incredible member of the imaging team, Andrew Curry, um, who I'd like to do some of the illustrations in the book, and we can have that conversation later. Anyway, the point is what I discovered was Sidonia scale structures laid out in a geometry to replicate the geometry of the Giza Plateau and the geometry of the belt stars of Orion, except they or backward and right next to them on a much smaller scale in exactly the correct Giza orientation was the same geometry replicated literally a couple of miles away in the correct Giza orientation and that's what Andrew's uh, graphic uh, illustrates in its various subsections three four five six etc etc now, I how did we get from the crow to the and the mice to this geometry patterns? Well, hang on, I, I'm, I not, would I'm go not in a different hang, direction. Hang on, I, I'm, I'm not done yet. Thank you. I looked at this and I said, okay, is there a meaning here? Because the meaning appears to be redundant, meaning the same pattern is replicated twice, side by side except one of the replications is on a much smaller scale and it's been mirrored backwards. And that's where things got really interesting. Well, as soon as I discovered this geometry and started talking about it with 
various other members of the team on the show, the mice started rearranging the debris, the detritus, the plants, the bits of toilet paper, whatever, in the Giza geometry again and again and again, both in the pyramid and in the hallway leading to what used to be me and Robin's bedroom. And again, they're either genius, super genius mice or something is guiding them to amplify whatever it is I'm paying attention to at the moment. Well, if I were a spirit and wanted to communicate with you from a, from a non-physical realm and I had that, that kind of telekinesis possible or animal enlistment possible, um, that's what I would do. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think it necessarily is a message from Mars. I think it's a message. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did from, I say it was from Mars? No, but no. what I mean is this might not be, it might just be a message in Hoaglandy and Hoagland <laughs> language. Well, let's just assume it's a message, all right? Okay. How do we know it's a message? Because of the redundant geometry being displayed. Not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. And I'm assu- I would just count it as a blessing and a gift. And, Wouldn't you like to get to and, the bottom of who's doing no, it and why? I w- no, no. See, that's the I difference would, between you and me. I I've got to know. Huh? I would turn and just ask, just silently ask, say, I am so grateful and I'm so in awe of this. Um, I, I just thank you and I just humbly ask and then wait and see what happens. And I've done that. And the only, the, uh, it's not coming as dreams, it's not coming as visions, it's coming as physical stuff being rearranged that I cannot prove because well, no I can't one, think of a better language to talk to you in. That's exactly what Sagan and, and Drake said decades ago, a universal language of mathematics and geometry. Now, um, why is this? But a in, universal language that interests you, that you speak it. It's about it's my could be about you. Well, it's Your about it, it's about what I've been for the last forty years, which is how does this geometry translate to a physics and the physics? It's talking in the language of what you've been involved in for the last forty years, but it's not necessarily talking about the objective thing that you've been talking about. It's talking to you in your own language. But in order Which for so there to be, more, in order for there to so be, so much more personal. In order for there to be a conversation, there must be a receiver and a transmitter, and there must be there a are. common, agreed set of symbols. Otherwise, the message is lost. I mean, I would not understand Sanskrit. I wouldn't relate to Boolean algebra very well. But simple sure. geometric forms that are the three-dimensional you know, result of this higher dimensional well, physics. Well, I take the message to be saying, to be opening the conversation by saying, I'm here. I don't take it to be saying, um, your derivations um, of this mathematics as applied to Sidonia C- and other, um, other sites is accurate. I take it to be saying, 
Hello, I'm here. Well, there's another level of communication, which is okay. that the level of personality. And I'll give you one one example. Um, many, many years ago, I developed a real uh, taste for candy corn. And the only time you can really buy candy corn in stores is around this time of year, Halloween. And what happens is after Halloween, they all get rid of their stock. And, you know, when you're when you're limited to box stores or, you know, Walmart or whatever, you got to wait another year. Um, well, a few months, maybe a, a year after Robin died, I said to a friend of mine, I would really love some candy corn. And this was like in the spring of the summer, whenever. Not a not a jar to be found in any store, except if you go online, if you go to Amazon. Jeff Bezos, thank you. You can get all the candy corn 24-7, 12 months of the year, if you order it online. So my friend ordered me candy corn, and I, you know, was reveling in it. I put it in a little candy dish on the coffee table, um, and one night I, I went over to the library where I have one of the computers, and I, you know, was trying to eliminate the mice because they're very noisome. So I have these live traps, and I, you know, catch them and take them out, walk them a thousand feet away, and let them go. That's been a kind of a fruitless exercise because they seem to find their way back faster than I can carry them out. Small detail. Anyway, I began to notice that above one of the traps in the library, there was this plastic wrapper that was transparent. And I began to notice that it, we, it was filling up with candy corn. Something was taking the corn from the candy dish on the coffee table and not eating it, but assembling it into a major pile inside this plastic wrapper sitting on a box in the library right above where I had put the trap because that's the uh, area that leads downstairs to the studio and I wanted to catch them coming and going upstairs and downstairs like the old you know, television show. Then I noticed one day I happened to be sitting on another part of the living room and I was looking at the pyramid at a different angle than I normally view it and I noticed that something had taken one piece of candy corn and placed it carefully behind the leg of a three-legged, four-legged stool that I have in the pyramid to put various things on because it has to be no metal, all wood. And they carefully concealed it from where I could see it, I only could see it if I went to another part of the room to look at it from a totally different angle, the same pyramid where this constantly rearranging geometry of hyperdimensionality is being played out, or it used to be. They've, they've stopped doing that, haven't done that in months. And then I'm sitting on the couch one night, I'm trying to watch something on television, and I'm looking across the coffee table at the big screen and one of the mice literally does a cartwheel from one side of the coffee table to the other side of the coffee table right across the candy dish with the candy corn literally a cartwheel if you ever imagine a small mouse doing cartwheel jumping three feet in the air over a distance of maybe four or five feet, I, could, I was astonished that they could do that. 
I did not know they had that agility. Obviously, this little guy was trying to get me to focus on the connection between the dish, the stash, and the pyramid. And it all came down to the fact that Robin, in the middle of a desert of candy corn, far from Halloween, long before I got my friend after she died to bring me some or send me some, Robin had found a source separate and had secreted it away as a surprise gift in the middle of the summer, long before Halloween. And though that was an incredibly personal communication between us across some dimension. We're into the break, Rich. Gosh, we are. Okay. On that note, (laughs) oh, these personal stories. What else can I say? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the last half hour of The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, Monday morning. Well, Richard, you wanted me to tell the story. What do you think? Well, I I think it was nice that we had a break because the story really needed silence. Um, it's, uh, it spoke for itself. And... Um, I think the longer the silence that follows it to just kind of contemplate it, the more it says. And maybe for everyone listening, that's kind of true, too. Um, It's a very meaningful and powerful story. And 
in a And universe. I can't prove a word of it. You have I to know. accept me as an honest reporter telling you exactly what I've observed. If you think well, I'm a liar or a cheat is, or someone who's doing this for money or whatever, the story without evidence that's replicable by somebody else becomes just that, a nice story. That's known as life. I mean, that's true of all the most meaningful things in one's life. They're, they're things that happen, they're, they're not replicatable, and, the th- and what gives them meaning is not anything that can be objectified. And in fact, so many of the things that are objectifiable um, are pretty thin and, um, and ultimately kind of meaningless compared to these, um, these breakthroughs of meaning. The real issue, at least I, and here I'm just sort of empathizing, is can you, can you take that experience and and um, instead of having it be a one-off experience, somehow um, use it to open into something. Um, maybe maybe um, you, you're 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 such a familiar to outer space. Maybe you're going to need it to get to inner space. But it's such an opening. I mean, it's it's like an it's like an offer. It's like an invitation. It's an I think of it almost in kind of Hindu terms. It's like an invitation to skip some uh, some lifetimes and go straight to um, straight to a truth that it might take many cycles of incarnation, assuming you even believe in that 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 kind of worldview. Um, it's um, it's really a moment for you um, and. Although it's great to talk about it on the show, it's um, it's it's only it, it's only you who can work with it and turn it into something for yourself. My cousin, who may be listening to the show in L.A., um, it's not as late there. Her um, her partner of many years, going back to her teenage years, um, died a few years ago, and. Um, and she was pursued by a, I, whether it was a raven or a crow, she was pursued by a giant black bird. She was convinced um, and is convinced, um, keeps repeating and keeps coming back to her. And she was pretty sure that when she went to Panama, it was the same bird that was there, which only spirit birds of crow sorts would do. Um, it reminds me of, of, the Castaneda Don Juan um, thing where um, Don, whether you believe in that or not, those stories, it's, it's a worthwhile story where Don Juan tells him, how do you know what anything is? Any person walking along, is that a real person or is that a ghost person? If it's not somebody you know, you don't know for sure. You don't know if the bird is a spirit bird, if the mice are spirit mice. I'm just saying. <laughs> they're uh, not. Believe me, they're not. <clears throat> okay. Well, maybe maybe they're they're not. They're um, they're sort of like um, what Jung called psychoids. They're they're borderline animals. They're they're borderline and messengers between the world of spirit and the world of matter, and um, and so. Um, 
the hard thing for us, because we're in a culture that doesn't support it, and a culture which almost, I mean, I don't know how much capitalism drives it, but I imagine a lot because it's so based on making people want to buy their way and, and get objects to take them out of, out of loneliness and out of funk. Well, well, well let, me, um, let me stop you there because capitalism is simply Darwinian. It's based on the idea that it's a zero-sum game, that everything has a uh, price, that there's an energy mm-hmm. cost to doing everything. Once you uh-huh. open the doorway hyperdimensionally, once you understand there's a physics of multi-dimensions where energy and information passes through the uh, aliens then don't have a budget anymore. No. <laughs> Certainly not within our realm. No, no. And um, and that, I mean, I've always thought that, that the, stra- I mean, I've thought this since I was a child, the strangest thing is that we're here. There's no instruction manual. There's no plan. There's no explanation. People have all sorts of stories and explanations, including the favorite one these days, which is this sort of the explanation of no explanation, that there is no explanation, that we're an accident, that this is just what happens when dust bounces around for a while and, and uh, begins sticking, and then it forms these mic- microtubules, and they use the, you know, their qubits to send energy into synapse, and suddenly you have a brain which is just creating mirages anyway for a being who doesn't exist, us and all these animals. Or you have a sort of temple. You have a gathering center of hyperdimensional, to pick a, a word of yours, hyperdimensional reality in which um, beings are gathering in order to meet each other and teach each other and, um, and guide each other and um, ultimately, I think, care for each other, although the phase we're going through now is doing that by its opposite. You mentioned, and I want to get back to, you know, another couple of experiences, which, again, the only reason you're going to believe this is if you believe in the reporter. In other words, in order to gauge the verisimilitude of what I've been describing, you have to believe that I'm describing it accurately and honestly. In other words... I believe it because... The cost to you of lying about this is so great personally that I don't think you'd pay it. Okay, that's an interesting way of putting it. Let me go back to something you said before, because I've said this several times in conversations with uh, uh, Georgia Lambert, who is our kind of resident metaphysician, and many other guests and just, you know, members of the, uh, of the audience. I believe we are going through a biblical Tower of Babel moment, and I now understand what you know that book in in the uh, you know Old Testament was trying to tell us. It's not about language as we think of language, Swedish, French, English, whatever. It's the very idea of communicating at the same plane of commonality, common concepts, and interpreting them commonly. Because we have an illustration in our country right now, to say nothing of around the world, where people of total goodwill and faith and honesty are talking right through each other, past each other. They don't even agree on the, on the definition of the same terms, but each of them are honest in their appraisal based on their inputs 
and they have no mechanisms of judging the validity of the inputs. And so we're at this moment that you talked about as a Tower of Babel moment. And I think it's not an accident that this is part and parcel of the unique time that we're in, which is the crescendo of the 26,000 year processional cycle, which in our model is driving the physics to this high point, this acme pinnacle, where everything is about to radically change. Yeah, and um, and again, John Friedlander would say that we agreed to be here for this. This isn't like... Well, see, that's your model. I don't know whether I buy that one at all. Well, I don't know if I buy it, but I'm just throwing it out there, you know? The one thing that I know, and we don't have a lot of time, so you wanted me to get into this, and I'll use this opportunity, because it could be illustrative. I mean, we've lost three-quarters of a million people. And if whatever I say can give someone comfort that that loved one, that brother, that sister, that, that person is still around, still somewhere, and they just can't communicate, that to me is part of the, the mission that Or that I, we can't hear them. Well, I'm hearing them, but I'm hearing them in a certain very limited bandwidth context. It's almost like Robin's making hostage videos and I'm getting a very <laughs> thin, really, I'm being very serious. I'm getting yeah, a very blank, blank, blank. It's like, yeah, if you hear this. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let me give you another one. Two weeks ago, I did a show with um, someone who for 20, 30 years has had a practice in LA of regressing people to past lives, has a huge database and is going to be on our Halloween show playing tapes of people describing under hypnosis their incarnation on other planets. We're going to have a really interesting evening because there'll be real people, not a regression, describing things that most people will dismiss as nonsense and craziness. One of the curious things, when I asked uh, my guest, his name is Scott, if he'd ever de- de, uh, debriefed someone who had a previous life on Mars, he gave me the most astonishing answer, which was yes, but not in this dimension. And why that was astonishingly interesting to me is because remember I showed you the Giza replicas uh, on Mars in the southern part of Jezero, both the big forward Uh, I'm sorry, backwards version, and then the smaller forward version that mirrors Giza. My tentative model, which I've discussed with a number of our uh, team about this, is that that records, by whatever civilization was on Mars at the time, a transition between a state of existence where we were in another dimension, and then we flip, we were shall we say, mirror reversed to where we're now in a artificial prison, kind of like Alex Jones' prison planet. And what we are experiencing now is a deliberate artificial separation from the higher dimensionality that we used to occupy and freely migrate between. And this set of monuments on Mars is designed to tell us there was this sudden transition and because of the proper motion of the belt stars of orion 
I can actually put a date on when this might have occurred. Okay, that's a model, all right, that we are basically in a phantom zone, kind of like the Superman mystique. You with me so far? Mm-hmm. A few weeks ago, a brilliant young astrophysicist published a paper, and I've got the link up on the other side of Midnight Tonight. It's my final uh, link, number five. Earth may be trapped inside a giant magnetic tunnel. If there has been a dimensional shift, but there's some kind of interface with three-dimensional reality as we know it, there should be some kind of signatures, some kind of electromagnetic uh, noise or signal or boundary conditions that would give it away. This astrophysicist, and there's the article there from Live Science connected right under the title, with a diagram shows that in this section of the Milky Way, about 350 light years out uh, and extending in lateral directions along the spiral arm, there is this weird tunnel or tube of magnetic flux and particle uh, radiation, et cetera, et cetera, almost like it's the interface between a higher dimensional shift and our lower three-dimensional, quote, reality. And the most significant part is this tunnel, this measurable now with physics uh, constraint in electromagnetism is well between us and the belt stars of Orion, meaning we literally could be seeing the universe as a mirror image in the larger galaxy from what we think we're seeing inside this artificially created bubble. And that would explain why it's so damn difficult for Robin to communicate across the boundary (laughs) because the bandwidth is so incredibly restricted and it only can operate at certain periods of time conforming to what I term a hyperdimensional astrological configuration of appropriate geometries in the solar system that make intermittent communication even possible at all. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Um, it's, it's very close to the series. Oh, there's images. more. There's more. I, I close bottoming out the universe with almost an identical series of images. Meaning? Quite apart from, you know, just that, that that's what I arrived at sort of reasoning this through was that, that I, I'd have to go grab it to quote the exact words and there's neither time nor reason. But, um, but um, I, I said, you know, what we're looking at is a reflection of the reality we're in, but it's an exact, it's, it is the reality because the reflection has become the reality. And, um, and I quoted, it's very close. um, It's very, very, see independent observers using independent clues, arriving at a overlapping common message. There was a, um, there were, there's this wonderful quote from uh, Seth too, which is uh, that I closed the book with. Um, he, this was the higher form of the Seth 
entity um, communicating through Jane Roberts said, this dimension and source realm nurses your own world, reaching down into your system. These realities are still only those at the edge of the one in which you have your present existence, far beyond are others, so alien to you that I could not explain them. Yet they are connected with your own life and they find expression even within the smallest cells of your flesh. We do not understand the nature of the reality you are creating, even though the seeds were given to you by us. We respect it and revere it. Do not let the weak sounds of this voice confuse you. The strength behind it would form the, would form the world as you know it and sustain it for centuries. Um, you know, one of the, this is a rather abrupt switch from this, but we're short on time in this program. Um, uh, and this is sort of forbidden, uh, I'm gonna speak forbidden stuff, but <laughs> in, in, the, in, the, in the anti-vax conspiracy theories of which there are a multiplicity, yes. the only one that, the only far out one that interests me, and this comes a lot from Patricia Corey, who is living in the Canary Islands right beside that volcano, um, is that the, the graphene oxide in the vaccines is meant to break that link so that we can't communicate anymore outside the bubble. And that the drive to vaccinate, rather than use natural immunity or ivermectin or or any of a number of other means of fending off the virus is secretly an attempt of these dark entities that are, have been interfering with us um, to block us. And I watched all these, I, I binge watched Outlander and then I binge watched Manifest. And, you know, I write at the end of. The, oh, that was the, the, that was the series we were watching when Robin died. Oh wow! Manifest. What a call, what a calling! And I and I have a huge body that I haven't had time to get to. Yeah, well, I, I it strikes me that 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 everybody suddenly was binge watching it and it rose up to like the most watched show because everybody's getting these callings. They're not as hyped up and Hollywoodized as the ones on the show, but the thing is the same. Only the plane flights that were on that flew that went through the hole in uh, in time is the one you described which is the super galaxy which is moving a tremendous speed through these holes that we can't even see and delivering us into other realities and the callings are things that we have to solve together but so see in order to show, solve it and we don't have a lot of time and i want to get the the kind of climax of this story in um, could be because the, the 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 time flow between dimensions is not the same. And I'll give you an example. Robin died at dawn on the 3rd of March in 2019. And someone immediately pointed out, okay, 3rd of March, 3rd month, 3-3, three, three, part of the hyperdimensional physics. The dawn part to me was even more compelling because I went and looked it up and she literally died at the first moment that the sun was coming over the horizon here in, in New Mexico where latitude and longitude. And we measured at Teotihuacan that that's when the physics goes 
boing. So a conduit opens at dawn. That's why, you know, prisoners are executed at dawn. That's why raiding parties, you know, go out into all that whole thing. It has to do with that connection momentarily as the sun peaks over the horizon as we're rotating toward it. Well, she died, and then six days later, in the hallway where the mice are now doing their geometry thing again, there appeared on the floor, on this green carpet, a Polaroid image six days after she died that I could never figure out where it came from. But it was a most critical image because it was of her in a Carillion photography booth on a ship we'd been on eight years before, showing her with the aura of a healer and very obscured, like, you know, she's almost ghost-like in this Polaroid. So what did I do? I put the Polaroid on the nightstand on the side of the bed where she used to sleep. And two weeks ago when I did the show with Scott, I went upstairs after the show and that picture has been sitting there for two and a half years and except for occasionally when I'll open a window and the breeze will blow and move it, it's been sitting there in that orientation forever. That night when I went upstairs, having done a lot of talking about Robin on that show because Scott wanted to keep bringing, like you wanted to keep bringing the conversation back to this experience, I went upstairs and that photograph had been rotated exactly 90 degrees. Now, why is that important? A, I don't think the mice did it. I know I didn't do it. <laughs> There's nobody else in the house that did it. Why is 90 important? Because 90 degrees, which is the squares in astrology, is when the hyperdimensional is most fixated in the three-dimensional. In other words, it's the concretization paradigm underlying the math and geometry of hyperdimensional physics. And now the damn mice are arranging right triangles in that same hallway with little bits of white debris. Redundancy. Messages must be redundant in order to be perceived as real messages. She's alive and well somewhere. She cannot yeah, freely she communicate. And with her sense of humor, she loved to be mentioned. She loved mm -hmm. being mentioned when she was in this dimension. And so I spent most of the show talking about her. And that night she gave me an answer like she approved. And she showed me with the 90 degree angle how she was able to communicate that she approved. Did you notice that line from Whitley Strieber that I quoted about his, um, his deceased wife, Anne, who communicated to him very directly, I'm not Anne anymore, but I'll always be Anne to you. Sounds very Clarkian. Remember 2010? Sure. Um, no, oh, Arthur Clarkian. Yeah, Arthur C. I, I Clark. don't remember. I don't remember, no. Um, uh, Keir DeLay, as one of the astronauts keeps appearing to him, and, mm -hmm. and you know, the, the, the new guy, the new head of NASA, the equivalent of NASA in Peter's uh, film, um, he says, who are you? Well, I used to be, but I'm uh -huh. also that kind of same exact message. Yeah. So, yes, mm -hmm. I, but what's most crucial to me is that whoever's doing this has the same quirky Lucille Ball kind of sense of humor that was and is Robin. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's we are given so few solids. And I haven't even gotten into the story of the egg beater. So the okay. next time we talk, I'll tell you about the egg beater. Okay. Okay. All right. I I I think I'm yielding to the fact that we're winding down. Yeah, you got about four minutes. What, how do you want to end this? This chapter. How do I want to end it? I want to go to sleep. It's three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I never stay up this long. And uh, and to those friends who said they're going to listen, but they won't stay up this late, I, I'll speak to you from here. Well, I I think that as long as we're making, you know, closing loops a little bit, I would go again all the way back to 1986, I think it was uh, when I met you, and how if time if if time is an illusion in a sense and we're in uh, we're in this kind of timeless reality in which time is used to measure us out and allow us to participate together you could go forward or backward and we could be headed back towards that meeting almost to realize in a different way that um that it leads to this moment now here um you know it's part of the i don't know it just feels like um when i step back we're both named richard and when i step back and think um what is what is my connection with this guy <laughs> and it is some something about these messages and confirming and supporting um um i mean you were going through hell back then when i met you you had really um a, a kind of uh, an almost job like um even before the monuments of mars was published and um and now you're you're at a higher level of intelligence and it's not just mars it's the whole hyper dimension i'd agree and i don't think it's an accident that you and i are doing this journey together as it's not an accident that can and i or keith and i or some of the other team players, I think that we're all supposed to be on this path together. We're supposed to do this together to give insight to someone about something, and we may not even know what the something is. My guest this morning has been Richard Grossinger. We've had a far and wide-ranging conversation occupying multiple dimensions far beyond just Mars. So next week, we're going to do the... uh, part two of the Bill Shatner overview effect story with a lot of surprises. And then on Sunday night, Halloween with a hyperdimensional twist. Until then, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.